have shown in the 20th century now into the 21st century that preventing cancer is possible. And I think that that mind shift, that uh, philosophical shift is really critical. We need to do a better job of educating people, of educating providers, of educating investigators, and, our, and, and educating Congress. Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. I'm your host, Melissa Harris, and welcome back to our National Cancer Act 50th Anniversary Commemoration mini-series. As we enter this fourth episode in the mini-series, I have some special news to share. We originally planned to release episodes for this mini-series every other month throughout this year leading up to the National Cancer Act's official anniversary in December. But thanks to your great feedback about the series, we see that there's more to the history of progress against cancer than we could fit into just six episodes. Starting now, you'll see an episode for this mini-series every month through December. This great change in plans will make this an eight-part mini-series. I'm so excited about this announcement, and I hope you are too. With that housekeeping done now, let's get into today's episode, which will center around cancer prevention. Before we get to cancer prevention, it's important to look at cancer detection first. That is because scientists early on have been able to identify and study the formation of certain cancers, and from there, start to uncover respective causes and prevention practices. Before the National Cancer Act passed in 1971, there were some key discoveries in cancer detection that helped lead the National Cancer Institute toward its work in the cancer prevention space upon the passage of the act. One of these important scientific breakthroughs in cancer detection and prevention was in the 1920s, when Greek physician Dr. George Papanikolaou discovered that cervical cancer can be detected by examining vaginal cells under a microscope. This research led to the development of a pap test, which has helped identify and prevent cervical cancer and has since 1951 been recommended as an annual screening that women should receive. In the years leading up to the National Cancer Act too, there were a number of studies that revealed various carcinogens. Dr. Philip Castle, the director of NCI's Division of Cancer Prevention, will tell us more. In 1962, Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, which was about pesticide use and its effect on the environment, raising interest and awareness that pollutants may cause cancer, and therefore reducing pesticides in the environment will reduce cancer risk. And of course, in 1964, the Surgeon General Luther Terry had published a report on the health hazards of cigarette smoking, including it was a cause of lung cancer and laryngeal cancer in men and probably caused lung cancer in women. So at the time of the National Cancer Act, there was a big focus on identifying external carcinogens. While researchers were starting to identify patterns and causes of cancer around the passage of the National Cancer Act, few studies were looking at factors involved with connecting the dots between detection and prevention. The National Cancer Act gave the resources and support for NCI and scientists in the cancer research field to start bridging those gaps. The Cancer Act, among other things, accelerated research on prevention and screening alongside of diagnosis and treatment of cancer. 
It focused on the re research conversation on prevention as a part of the cancer care continuum. It also increased support for basic research, was, which was critical to progress all areas of research. It created the, nationals, the nation's uh, cancer clinical trials network, which led to practice-changing trials for patients in areas of prevention, early detection, symptom management, as well as treatment. As Dr. Castle just noted, all of that underlying research and work around cancer detection and prevention helped uncover many more different factors that contribute to the causes of cancer, as well as new technologies, methods, and practices that can help screen and prevent cancer. Let's start with the causes, which NCI Division of Cancer Prevention Deputy Director Dr. Lori Manajan said is largely around age, genetics, and environmental exposure. We'll start with age. It's just a part of the aging process that one would be at risk for cancer, although we are understanding how cancer develops in ways that can begin to prevent or reduce your risk of cancer even as you age. So environmental, as we said, they're smoking. But we're beginning to learn more about the fact that obesity is linked to certain cancers. Certainly with smoking, it's not just lung cancer and throat cancer. There are multiple cancers. So if you can not ever smoke or quit smoking afterwards or quit using any tobacco-related products, in fact, you will reduce your risk for developing cancer. But it is complicated. And the interactions between different elements that may or may not cause cancer is challenging. So we need good models. We need good preclinical models that will help us understand the basic science of how cancer develops and help us translate that science into work that we can do with people, whether it's taking blood from cancer patients, taking blood from healthy patients so that we can better understand what markers could be available to check for cancer, or if we can, in fact, understand the genetics better as well. And with respect to genetics, in the past 50 years, we've evolved our understanding to the point where we fully acknowledge that cancer is a genetic disease. Not just that one may inherit, inherit the risk for developing cancer, but that even as you age, there are changes, genetic changes, as a consequence of just living, being exposed to different things. And those genetic changes, in fact, can lead to cancer. Those genetic changes change the way cells are regulated in the body. And the body's always trying to repair damaged cells. So some patients do have the inability to repair damaged cells appropriately over time. So it gets to be a fairly complex process that we've had to tease out very carefully through our basic science, through the translational science, and then bring that into the clinical studies so that we can understand what a patient's risk is, an individual patient's risk, what kind of interventions, what kinds of things we need to do to reduce the risk so that cancer doesn't develop or to detect or to identify early cancer and then treat it early as well. 
The seemingly endless list of causes and complexities behind the emergence of cancer really does make it seem impossible to prevent. But NCI has pushed new discoveries in the prevention space, both in overall preventing cancer from happening and in prevention of severe cancers. Just to give you an idea, in 1970, breast cancer was the leading cause of cancer-related death in women, and colorectal cancer was the second leading for both women and men, and at the time the primary mode of treatment for these cancers was surgical removal. Not only have the treatments evolved over time, but now we have screenings like mammograms and colonoscopies and treatments like tamoxifen to help prevent these cancers from happening in the first place. Although those are just a couple of examples, the overall target strategies of cancer prevention can be broken down into three areas, two of which are avoidance and screening and treatment. So there's a lot of ways that we can avoid cancer, right? So smoking, of course, is a big cause of cancer. There's lots of uh, cancers for which we can screen for. There are some that we, many that we can't, but there are some that we can't. And we don't always avail ourselves of those opportunities. So we can screen for cervix. We can screen for breast. Uh, we can screen for uh, hepatitis C virus, uh, which is the cause of liver cancer. The third major focus area is vaccination. We have two vaccines to date that actively prevent cancer, the human papillomavirus vaccine or the HPV vaccine, which is approved for boys and girls age 12 and above. That will prevent cervical cancer and some other cancers. There is the hepatitis B vaccine, which now babies get at birth, and that will prevent liver cancer. So we've got two vaccines that are approved by the FDA for cancer prevention. One way to look at the convergence of all of these methods is in the prevention of cervical cancer. Earlier, I mentioned that the pap smear test, a screening technique, was one of the earlier methods of detecting and preventing cervical cancer. However, once NCI understood through the 1990s Guanacaste HPV Natural History Study that HPV was a major cause of not only cervical cancer, but cancer of the anus, vulva, vagina, and penis, the Institute advanced layers of screening to prevent cervical cancer. Once we understood that HPV was the obligate viral cause of cervical cancer, it led to two revolutionary advances prophylactic HPV vaccination to prevent HPV-related cancers, including cervical cancer, what we call primary prevention, and HPV testing for cervical cancer screening, what we call secondary prevention. Both are incredibly effective, and as a result, replacing pap smears or cervical cytology as the standard of care for prevention of cervical cancer. And the Guanacosti Natural History Study led to conducting the first independent NCI-led HPV vaccine trial, also in Costa Rica. One of the key steps in developing the evidence that HPV testing was more effective than pap smears and cervical cytology was the NCI-sponsored ALTS for ASCUS LCIL triage study, a randomized controlled trial in the late 1990s and early 2000s that demonstrated that HPV testing of women with an equivocal pap result found nearly all the women with cervical precancer and reduced the number of women needing follow-up care by half. Eventually, as the evidence became available, it became clear that the roles of the test should be reversed. Test for HPV to find who has the necessary risk factor for cervical cancer, then use pap smears and cervical cytology for those 
who are HPV positive to decide who needs further evaluation. Now, piggybacking off the progress NCI has made in advancing cervical cancer prevention, the Institute is leveraging its Moonshot Initiative, a program founded at the end of 2016 to accelerate cancer research. It largely centers around accessibility, but I'll let Dr. Castle continue this story. As part of the NCI Moonshot to accelerate cervical cancer prevention and control, the NCI is conducting a series of studies to prevent to develop more robust ways to deliver HPV-targeted prevention strategies to everyone in the world, especially those living in low- and middle-income countries. This includes developing lower-cost HPV tests and an artificial intelligence method that works off a smartphone to triage HPV-positive women to decide who needs immediate care, and determining whether a single dose of HPV vaccination is as good as multiple doses. As the result of these HPV-targeted approaches for prevention of cervical cancer, the World Health Organization is now calling for the elimination of cervical cancer as a public health problem globally. Finally, we know that 13,000 women continue to be diagnosed with, and over 4,000 women continue to die of cervical cancer annually in the United States. Over half of the new cervical cancer cases in the United States are among the women who've never been screened or are infrequently screened reflecting barriers presented by socioeconomic uh, disparities, geographic inaccessibility, among other factors. NCI is starting a clinical study of home self-sampling for HPV testing to, to overcome some of these real barriers, both for women living in the U.S. and elsewhere, which will help the WHO cervical cancer elimination campaign. NCI has made progress in prevention and mitigation of other cancers, too, with treatments and screenings. One of these cancers is breast cancer. In 1970, just to give a little preamble, the, there was no systemic therapy. There was no IV drugs or pills to take for breast cancer. It was simply a surgical a removal of the breast to treat breast cancer. Over time, we've learned that when you give a drug after you've had that surgical removal, you can prevent the recurrence of breast, of breast cancer. In some of the studies that we have done over time, we've actually demonstrated that in early stage breast cancer patients, not only can we reduce the risk of, that the breast cancer will come back, we can also reduce the risk that new breast cancers can happen. And so that was really a pivotal finding and led to the approval of a drug called tamoxifen that, that has been shown not only to reduce the risk of developing a new breast cancer, but also even to take breast cancer lesions that are not really, that are not cancer lesions, but are precancer lesions and treat them so that they never become cancer. There have been some challenges along the way in terms of the side effects of the drugs. And so over the, the, this period of time, we've taken metabolites you know, of these drugs and put them into a cream, if you will, so that women can actually use it as a topical agent and reduce the side effects that would come with it. And we're currently doing some studies that will actively explore how effective the topical cream is 
in reducing the risk of developing breast cancer. So we've come, so breast cancer has arced over the 50 years from being the leading cause of, of cancer mortality, the leading cause of cancer death in women, to something that might in fact be preventable with the right interventions. The other thing we've learned in this 50 years is that breast cancer is not one cancer. It's at least five different kinds of cancer that need different kinds of treatment. And so our understanding of how to target our therapy to the different kinds of breast cancer makes it a bit more challenging to think about how we might prevent it overall, because now we have to prevent not one, but five different kinds of breast cancer. While these examples about cervical and breast cancer are two that show the arc of progress the past 50 years or so, I also asked the doctors about the future of cancer prevention, which is largely centered around precision medicine, a topic that we've mentioned in previous episodes in this mini-series. So typically, uh, when people think about precision cancer prevention, they think about the molecular basis of cancer. And, and what I mean by that is understanding the biologic process in cancer and then using that information to develop a strategy to intervene. So whether it's a pathway, a biological pathway that we can interrupt, or there's a biomarker that shows that you're at increased risk in which we can then go in and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to take a biopsy. We're going to examine you more closely to really see what's going on. And if you have something that uh, looks like pre-cancer, we're going we're gonna to remove it. But precision cancer prevention goes beyond that. And I've been giving a lot of thought about that. So what I, what I mean is that we can think more broadly about precision cancer prevention, really talk about the who, what, where, when, and how of precision cancer prevention. And what I mean by that is that we can decide who needs the intervention, uh, what kind of intervention they need, where we deliver that intervention, that where could be, we could do it at home, we could do it at the clinic, we can think about the how of the delivery, so some of the work that we're doing in the division now is rather than taking systemic tamoxifen to prevent breast cancer in high-risk patients, we can deliver it topically. And so by delivering it topically, we get the active agent, in this case tamoxifen, to the tissue that we're trying to protect without exposing the rest of the body to tamoxifen, which can only lead to side effects. While precision cancer prevention and many other methods we just discussed are helping NCI pave the path to the future of cancer prevention, there are still a number of challenges that we face in the prevention space. One of those is in advancing prevention for people who are genetically predisposed to get certain cancers. The primary mode of prevention for these kinds of individuals is unfortunately just surgical removal, and while that can help, organ removal isn't always the most practical. Fortunately, NCI is trying to understand better ways of navigating cancer prevention when genetic predispositions come into the picture. I think the challenge with genetic mutations right now is that we are extremely good at identifying potential genetic mutations. We don't really understand the natural history of what those mutations may mean. So in fact, there are 
more genes that put people at risk for potentially breast cancer and other cancers, the ATM mutation, RAD54, and other mutations. And we don't really understand what an individual person's risk is, what the family member's risk is for that. We're in the process of studying ovarian cancer much more concretely. And to give an example there, we do know that in the case of ovarian cancer patients, if we explore, if we look at the genetic markers in their tumors, we would actually treat a patient differently, give them different therapy for their ovarian cancer based upon the genetic testing. Okay. That then allows the person, the patient to know what their tumor genetic is, as well as what their individual genetics are. And if in fact they are at risk, then one of our programs is exploring different ways to then allow family members to be tested given that, you know, mom or a sister or an aunt or somebody else in the family has this, they then can be tested. Well, then how would you then intervene for those women with that risk? Amid these programs NCI is doing for genetic testing, we have still learned over the past 50 years since the National Cancer Act passed that certain surgical procedures can still help individuals who are genetically predisposed quite a bit. For instance, in the last 50 years, NCI discovered that the most lethal form of ovarian cancer starts in the fallopian tube, not the ovary. So, NCI is doing work exploring how fallopian tube removal, or tying, can help reduce severe and lethal forms of ovarian cancer. We do have some ongoing studies in women right now to explore what it means to remove the tubes first and see how much that may reduce their risk of ovarian cancer. And then later in life, potentially after menopause, remove their ovaries as well. But it gets very complicated. And one of the things we have seen in the spillover from this outside of oncology is we've actually seen gynecologists decide and start to implement a different form of a sterilization. So women who have completed childbirth frequently up until recently would have a tubal ligation, which is to say would have the tubes, the fallopian tubes actually tied so that you don't have that moval between the, uh, the ovary and the uterus so that you can reduce pregnancy. Given all of the data with ovarian cancer, uh, many of the regular GYNs are, are now surgically removing the fallopian tube. So it's entirely possible that over the next 20 years, we may see a marked reduction in the lethal form of ovarian cancer as because women who are finished with childbirth have their tubes removed. Even as NCI continues to uncover new ways to prevent cancer, one of the biggest barriers to cancer prevention is in lack of awareness and education of both patients and providers. On top of that, a lot of people still struggle to access screenings and treatments that are helpful for getting ahead of cancer. Between these two barriers, many people have not received some known preventative treatment for certain cancers. It's uh, certainly education, not just education, education of the consumer, 
it's education of the providers. There is certainly vaccine hesitancy, and uh, we've experienced that quite a bit with the rollout of the COVID vaccines. With, with regards to screening, uh, there are multiple barriers uh, involved. Uh, again, knowledge and education are critical, both at the provider and the consumer or patient level. But some of it's access issues. You, have, you, know, you need insurance to get it paid for. Often uh, there are geographical barriers. There are, there are racial, ethnic barriers and cultural barriers that get in the way of doing this. You know, it's very simple things. You know, to go get a screening uh, for anybody, they, you know, often they're going to have to take time off from work or they're going to have to find daycare for their child. So it's not so trivial. You know, we have these great prevention strategies, but uh, implementing them and making them available for everybody is going to take some more work. To that end, we are working on strategies in which we can bring the screening to the home of people, like uh, our last mile initiative in which we are working with the FDA and some of the diagnostic companies to get FDA approval for home-based self-collection and HPV testing for cervical cancer screening. So rather than having to come to the clinic, you know, make an appointment, come to the clinic, have a pelvic exam, which no woman enjoys having, we could deliver a self-collection device to their home and they can send it back through the mail or have it delivered to a pickup point like a pharmacy, get the results, and only they would only have to come back to the clinic if they, were, they tested positive. While science is pushing forward to bring solutions closer to the patient, we can at least address some of the education issues now with a few parting pieces of advice that the doctors have to help you take action to prevent yourself from getting cancer. One of these ways is pretty easy. Know your family history and talk to your family members to learn about it. Know your family history. It's challenging at times. In the 70s, nobody talked about cancer. In fact, uh, my own grandmother refused to acknowledge that one of her children died of cancer. So we've come a long way just in being able to talk about cancer and being able to understand and communicate about the risks for cancer and cancer prevention. There are other really important steps you could take to with your health, which Dr. Castle went more into. We strongly discourage people from starting to use tobacco products. If they are, uh, we encourage them to stop. But yet, as we know, uh, in the United States, about one out of and one in 14 adults and one out of eight high school students still use tobacco products. Avoiding weight gain by eating a healthy diet and exercising reduces cancer risk, partly because obesity and type 2 diabetes, which is linked to weight, contribute to the development of several cancers. Second, we have effective vaccines for, that prevent cancer-causing infections. Vaccination against human papillomavirus, or HPV, is highly effective and very safe at preventing HPV, which causes virtually all cervical and anal cancers, as well as uh, many penile, vulvar, vaginal, and oropharyngeal cancers. Yet more than 50% of adolescents ages 13 to 17 years old have not completed their HPV vaccine series. Hepatitis B is a major cause of liver cancer worldwide. And though, although these vaccines have existed for more than 40 years, approximately 75% of Americans have not been vaccinated against it. 
There's also strategies that using non-vaccine agents to prevent cancer, including daily low-dose aspirin for some people at risk of colorectal cancer, selective estrogen receptor modulators such as tamoxifen and raloxifene for women at elevated risk of uh, breast cancer like those who are BRCA1 carriers. Third, screening tests are proven to reduce the number of cases and deaths of certain cancers. These include screening for colorectal cancer, lung cancer, cervix cancer, and, and breast cancer. And for example, in lung cancer, uh, which is something that's become available in the last decade, lung cancer screening, we have less than 10% of the people who um, are recommended for lung cancer screening getting lung cancer screening even today. So that's a real problem, and lung cancer is a highly lethal cancer. So there's a lot that we can do to reduce our risk now, and through research, we really are hoping that we can come up with new strategies to reduce risk in the future. While cancer can be really scary and uncertain in many regards, you can see that there are at least a great number of ways that you can get ahead in protecting yourself from cancer. These past 50 years of work that NCI has done has helped us get to where we are now with the great knowledge and technology we have to mitigate cancer before it happens, and it'll be great to see what NCI does as it pioneers the future in this field. Thank you to Doctors Castle and Manasian for your great insight today, and thank you listeners for tuning into HealthCast for this episode in our National Cancer Act anniversary miniseries. Remember that we're releasing the episodes now for this miniseries monthly throughout the end of the year, and you could tune in next month to our fifth episode, which will be on childhood cancer. Thank you so much for sticking around. And if you want to stick around for more content, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll see you next time. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris and Adam Patterson. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.